Father, I pray now that the unfolding of your words would give light. That there would be light to understand what your scriptures mean and how they apply to our lives. And give great heat with that light, Lord. Give us a passion to, to receive your word as truth and to live it out. Father, we thank you for this privilege to get to sit under your word. I ask for grace, Lord, in speaking faithfully, clarity, for exalting Christ. Ask, Lord, for grace for those who are, are receiving this word, that they would measure all things by your word and the Spirit and feed off of what you've said. We ask all this in the name of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. How dangerous is selfish ambition to you? How dangerous is selfish ambition to you? Is it just in the political arena, sports field? Do you see it in school if you're a student? Do you see it even in the nursery if you're ever with children? Ambition. Ambition is just that idea of desire. You're you're thirsting after something. You're longing for it. Desire or determination. It's not inherently wrong in and of itself. We are made to have ambition, to get things done, to seize things, to go after them. It's not inherently wrong, but it can be incredibly toxic if ambition is cultivated out of selfishness and pride. To keep this from just being abstract, imagine selfish ambition comes face to face with you. Imagine someone you love is in the hospital... And let's say they're on the operating table. They're having surgery, and the surgery goes wrong. As tragic as that would be to hear that one you love has just had a surgical procedure that's gone wrong, do you know what could be worse? If you coupled this kind of news with it, and here's the news that you you receive. Here's, Here's what's coupled with that bad surgery. You find out the doctor was an imposter. You find out that the ambition that he had to get through medical school was selfish. And as he went through medical school, he faked his way through it. He cheated on exams. He even leveraged his family's relational connections and their wealth to hire others to help him in this scheme. Now this supposed surgeon is standing over another patient. Might not be somebody you love, but it's somebody someone else loves. He's standing over another patient, scalpel in hand, getting ready to go to work. How would you feel then about selfish ambition? Here's a better question. Not just how would you feel, how long do you think that would last? How long do you think he could keep it up? Being a fake, not really authorized to do what he's doing, how long do you think that would last? That scenario, the reason we're thinking about that, that's what it feels like to read Judges chapter 9. Judges chapter 9, Abimelech is unqualified to be a king. He selfishly makes a power grab for the throne of Israel. Completely selfish. He hires other worthless guys to do shady things to get him to the top. He'll do anything to get to the top and stay on top. And just like 
maybe a corrupt doctor would pursue that selfish, wrongful gain for a paycheck or for an authority or for status. Abimelech's doing the very same thing. He's unqualified, but selfish ambition drives him. So it's painful to see this, but God has given us this account because we're actually supposed to learn something from it, some profound things about our lives. So turn with me. Turn to Judges chapter 9. This is page 208 in the Bibles under the seats around you. Judges chapter 9. And we're going to read a few verses at the front half of the chapter that lead into the chapter. We're going to start in chapter 8, verse 33. And we're going to read a few verses after chapter 9 so that we have a context for all of chapter 9. As you're turning there, I just want to remind you, Judges is called Judges because the Lord raises up Judges. These are military judges. They're not people sitting in a courtroom. They're military judges that God raises up at different times to lead the nation. This is after the Mosaic leaders have died. This is before the monarchy. There's a new generation. They don't love God. They don't serve him. They keep falling into more and more sin and trouble and sink lower and lower. And God keeps raising up these new strange deliverances of judges. And the guy we're looking at today, Abimelech, he's not a judge. He's not a judge. But he's the son of a judge. He's the son of Gideon. Chapter 8 talked about. Gideon crushed this threat of Midian. Gideon was full of doubts. But if you remember from last week, what did God do to increase Gideon's faith? He gave him three different signs. Fire, this fleece, and this frightful, scary dream to the enemy. And these signs help strengthen Gideon. It's worth noting, because I got a few questions this week, a few good questions. I got a few questions about Should we be skeptical of signs? In that sermon last week, it was said we shouldn't be skeptical of signs. That's unbiblical. Just for the record, skeptical, how you define it, makes all the difference, does it not? There's a skeptical where you would think nothing supernatural can happen. That type of skeptical. That's the skeptical that was aimed at last week in the sermon. Supernatural things do happen. But not at all meaning we can't be skeptical and discerning. In fact, the scriptures would say in 1 John 4, we need to test the spirits. We need to test claims and things that come to us. So in that sense, it is biblical to be skeptical. We should be skeptical of of signs and things and test them. Are they true according to scripture? Are they valid? Are they true for now? So we want to be skeptical. But let's get into this passage. The book not only talks about signs and strange leaders, but here's the strangest king in the whole book of Judges right here. Fair warning, what we're about to read, it's going to have deceit, bribery, lies. It's going to have wrongful deaths. Just be ready. Let's read. Judges, we'll start in chapter 8, verse 33, and we'll go to chapter 10, verse 6. This is the word of the Lord. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Bereith their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. They didn't show steadfast love to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. Now Abimelech, the son of Jeroboam, went to Shechem 
to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, Say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, Which is better for you, that all seventy of the sons of Jeroboam rule over you, or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our brother. And they gave him seventy pieces of silver out of the house of Baal-berith, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jeroboam, seventy men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. When it was told to Jotham, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim, and cried aloud and said, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my abundance, by which gods and men are honored, and go hold sway over the trees? And the trees said to the fig tree, You come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit, and go hold sway over the trees? And the trees said to the vine, You come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men, and go hold sway over the trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, You come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in good faith you're anointing me king over you, then come, take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Now therefore, if you acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king, and if you've dealt well with Jeroboam and his house and have done to him as his deeds deserved, for my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian. And you have risen up against my father's house this day and have killed his sons, 70 men on one stone, and have made Abimelech, the son of his female servant, king over the leaders of Shechem, because he is your relative. If you then have acted in good faith and integrity with Jeroboam and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled and went to Beer and lived there because of Abimelech, his brother. Abimelech ruled over Israel three years, and God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And the leaders of Shechem dealt, dealt treacherously with Abimelech that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jeroboam might come and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem, who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. And the leaders of Shechem put men in ambush against him on the mountaintops, and they robbed all who passed by them along the way, and it was told Abimelech. And Gael, the son of Ebed, moved into Shechem with his relatives, and the leaders of Shechem put confidence in him. And they went out into the field and gathered grapes from their vineyards and trod them and held a festival. And they went into the house of their God and ate and drank and reviled Abimelech. And Gaal, the son of Ebed, said, Who is Abimelech and who are we of Shechem that we should serve him? 
Is he not the son of Jeroboam, and is not Zebel his officer? Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem. But why should we serve him? Would that this people were under my hand. Then I would remove Abimelech. I would say to Abimelech, increase your army and come out. When Zebel, the ruler of the city, heard the words of Gael, the son of Ebed, his anger was kindled. And he sent messengers to Abimelech secretly, saying, Behold, Gael, the son of Ebed, and his relatives have come to Shechem. They are stirring up the city against you. Now therefore, go by night, you and the people who are with you, and set an ambush in the field. Then in the morning, as soon as the sun is up, rise early and rush upon the city. And when he and the people who are with him come out against you, you may do to them as your hand finds to do. So Abimelech and all the men who are with him rose up by night and set an ambush against Shechem in four companies. And Gaal, the son of Ebed, went out and stood in the entrance of the gate of the city. And Abimelech and the people who were with him rose from the ambush. And when Gaal saw the people, he said to Zebel, Look, people are coming down from the mountaintops. And Zebel said to him, You mistake the shadow of the mountains for men. Gaal spoke again and said, Look, people are coming down from the center of the land. And one company is coming from the direction of the diviner's oak. Then Zebul said to him, Where is your mouth now? You who said, Who is Abimelech, that we should serve him? Are not these the people whom you despised? Go out now and fight with them. And Gael went out at the head of the leaders of Shechem and fought with Abimelech. And Abimelech chased him, and he fled before him, and many fell wounded up to the entrance of the gate. And Abimelech lived at Arumah. And Zebel drove out Gael and his relatives so that they could not dwell at Shechem. On the following day, the people went out into the field, and Abimelech was told. He took his people and divided them into three companies and set an ambush in the fields. And he looked and saw the people coming out of the city, so he rose against them and killed them. Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city while the two companies rushed upon all who were in the field and killed them. And Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He captured the city and killed the people who were within it, and he razed the city and sowed it with salt. When all the leaders of the tower of Shechem heard it, they entered the stronghold of the house of Elbereth. Abimelech was told that all the leaders of the tower of Shechem were gathered together. And Abimelech went up to Mount Zalman, he and all the people who were with him. And Abimelech took an axe in his hand and cut down a bundle of brushwood and took it up and laid it on his shoulder. And he said to the men who were with him, What you have seen me do, hurry and do as I have done. So every one of the people cut down his bundle and following Abimelech, put it against the stronghold. And they set the stronghold on fire over them so that all the people of the tower of Shechem also died, about a thousand men and women. Then Abimelech went to Thebes and encamped against Thebes and captured it. But there was a strong tower within the city, and all the men and women and all the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in, and they went up to the roof of the tower. And Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to his young man, his armor-bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, A woman killed him. And his young man thrust him through, and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his seventy brothers. 
And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jeroboam. After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo, a man of Issachar. And he lived at Shemir in the hill country of Ephraim. And he judged Israel twenty-three years. Then he died and was buried at Shemir. After him arose Jair, the Gileadite, who judged Israel twenty-two years. And he had thirty sons who rode on thirty donkeys. And they had thirty cities called Havath Jair to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried in Canaan. I pray we would come to understand from this passage the consequences that come from being ruled by selfish ambition, the danger of it, and yet that we would find hope in God's glorious salvation through judgment. Here's the main point of this passage. The context helps us because this is the only time in the entire book where somebody seizes the throne, takes the title of king for themselves at a time when everyone did what was right in their own eyes and there is no king. Here's the main point of everything that's happening. It's this. The most deadly threat to God's people comes from within, not from without, on the outside. The destructive consequences are laid before us when God's people allow selfish ambition to rule them personally and even corporately. This chapter, this passage is showing us that. All throughout Judges, there's been foreign armies who've oppressed the people. Here, there's no foreign army talked about. But there's all this mayhem and chaos and destruction coming out of God's own people. Nothing from the outside is making this happen. So there's some things that that God wants us to see this morning. We're briefly going to have a few sections of this passage. And there's going to be points within the sections. So there's four sections. If we were to divide up this, this account that we just read... And here it is, a bad beginning, a worse middle, a tragic end, but God still reigns. A bad beginning, a worse middle, a tragic end, but God still reigns. Look with me at this, this bad beginning. This is verses, uh, chapter 8, verse 33 through 9, verse 6. How would life begin after Gideon's death for the people? I mean, Gideon, if you remember, Gideon had said to the people, I will not rule over you as king. My son will not rule over you as king. The Lord God will rule over you as king. He said wonderful instruction to the people. He subdued Midian. So how will life begin after Gideon's death? We'll look there in verse 33 of chapter 8. As soon as Gideon died... The people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal-bereath their God. Verse 34, And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God. Israel wasted no time. Verse 33, As soon as Gideon died. Whatever temporary restraint Gideon's influence had on their desire for lawlessness was gone. It's like children knowing what they want to do, and they just wait till they're out of their parents' sight. They immediately spring upon it and do it. That's what Israel is like here. 
Their choice is so bad. Did you see what kind of language God placed on their sin? God uses some of the strongest, most heart-wrenching language to describe it. Whoredom. Israel whored after the Baals. Sin is not just being uh, unfaithful or bad to some abstract list of laws somewhere that God's written down and kind of set aside, and now he's doing his own thing. Sin is filthy and immoral and covenant love forsaken. They whored after the Baals. This was a, a reversal of the covenant God had made with them. They're giving their love and allegiance and devotion to someone else. They've lusted so strongly, so consistently, they've actually made a covenant with their sin. That's what that word bereath means there in verse 33, Baal bereath. Bereath means covenant. That's what the word means. They're giving themselves to Baal of the covenant. They're prostituting themselves to a foreign god. Not just casually or ever so often but they are joining themselves in covenant. They forget God, as verse 34 says. Forgetting God doesn't mean they couldn't pass a test if you quiz them on what God's like. This means they had no active remembrance. They just had dead facts in their brain, dead desires in their heart that weren't real, but they could say they knew of God. They could say they were God's people. So this is a bad beginning for the people, whoredom. But it's bad for Abimelech. Do you see how bad everything starts for him? Chapter 9. The way Abimelech starts out, it reminds me of uh, children in junior high, middle school. You know how, what it's like when kids have candy to sell for a fundraiser? You know, they'll go out, they'll try to get people to buy it. What ends up always happening at some level? The family members get asked, don't they? And they play the family card. Please, you know, buy some candy from me. That's what Abimelech does. He can't go out on a campaign throughout Israel. He goes and plays the family card. Look there at the start of chapter 9. He goes to Shechem, his mother's relatives. His mother was this concubine of uh, Gideon. And he said to them, Verse 2, say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, and now watch this, he's going to frame the question in terms of their self-interest. Okay, watch this. Verse 2, which is better for you? That all 70 of the sons of Jeroboam rule over you, or that one rule over you? Which is better for you? You see the irony of that statement anyway, though? Is it better for one to rule over you? Yes, it is. God himself, he is the one to rule over them. But he knows their eyes are just looking horizontal, just like his own. They're not thinking of God or looking to him. He's saying, would it be better for, for all those different sons of Gideon to rule? Or what about me? If I was the ruler, hey, remember, I'm your family. He says there, I'm your bone and your flesh. And then notice what happened in verse 3. When, the, when he plays the family card... Verse 3, his mother's relatives speak all these words. The leaders of Shechem hear it. And their hearts did what? Their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech. For they said, he's our brother. 
the beginning's bad for Abimelech. The beginning's bad for the people. The beginning's bad for those leaders of Shechem because they're just thinking about themselves. Their heart's inclined to follow Abimelech, not because he's so worthy to follow, that he's got this great character, this great pedigree, these great skills to lead and rule them. Why are they willing to follow him? It's that family card. Well, he's, at least he's family. He's probably going to do some good stuff for us. It's self-interest. And reminiscent of Judas, when he betrays Christ, they give him pieces of silver. They give him 70 pieces, as verse 4 said. They give it out of the house of Baal Bereath. That covenant that they had made with Baal, people are worshiping Baal, sinning against them. They're even giving their money to Baal. They take some of that money, that filthy money, and use it. What does Abimelech do with it? I'm sure he had told them their plan because they give him money. You wouldn't just give somebody money unless they asked for it, right? He hires worthless fellows to come together. So this first section, how bad it's gotten, it's bad for the people, Abimelech, the leaders of Shechem. Do you see how everyone here, all people involved, are just doing things for their own self-interest? I think one of the lessons God has for us here to, to weave into our personal lives is that question Abimelech asked them, and he says, which is better for you? Have you ever noticed yourself giving advice to somebody saying, hey, do what's good for you. You need to take care, do, do what's good for you. I've heard people older than me say that. I've heard people younger than me say that. I've heard my own peers say that. That's common wisdom in the world. Do what's good for you. And we can even put a Christian veneer over the front of that. Do what's good for you. Do you see how wicked that is? That puts us in the center. Here's a better question. Try to put this into your vocabulary. If you ever find yourself getting ready to say that to somebody, instead say, which would be you know, most loving for God? What would be most honoring to God? That's what's going to be better for you in the long run. The challenge with saying what's, what's best for you puts our eyes on the short term. It usually puts God out of our mind. What's best for us What's better for you is always to try to love God, to honor him. We can even take application, though, from this first section and realize we can use our families just to get what we want. I think God's word is showing us here that we can play the family card outspoken with our lips or by our actions and make our family be like pawns on the chessboard to position us to get what we want. Notice Abimelech plays the family card, I'm your bone and flesh. But then he goes and kills his brothers. Which is it? Self-contradictory. Are you for your family or against them? One other thing. We can't leave this. Have you taken to heart how bad sin really is? The narrative is so much about Abimelech, we may forget all those little details about the people of God whoring after the Baals. You might not think this morning, you know, my heart is in covenant delight with my sin. No, you might be deceived. And you might think, I can just look at this impurity a little bit. I'll come back to it a little bit later, next week or the week after. Just a little bit, I'll dabble. I can steal some money here. I can steal some 
some goods and privileges here. It's just a little bit. I can have just a little bit of bitterness when I'm around that person, but when I'm not around them, I'm, I'm okay. It's not going to affect my heart. Sin is a moral affront to God. The people of Israel are sinning against God, and their hearts are getting harder and harder and harder, and they don't even know it. Hebrews 3.13 warns us. It says, exhort one another every day. Why? Because sin always does two things to our heart at a minimum. It hardens our heart. It dulls it towards God, the things of God, enjoying him, and it deceives us. Hebrews 3.13 tells us, exhort one another every day that none of you might be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Israel is so hard towards the Lord, so deceived, they don't even know they've made a covenant to another God. Yes, practically they know they've done it, but they don't think it's as bad as it really is. It's whoredom. Well, if things start out that bad, what's going to happen now? Well, they get worse. The second section here, a worse middle, this is verses 7 of chapter 9, verse 7, all the way through chapter 41. It's the big middle section of this this account. Things get worse for Shechem because the moment they anoint Abimelech king, you know what happens? They don't get to enjoy his kingship. They get indicted with a warning right off the bat. Jotham, the youngest who escaped, he stands up on a mountain next to the people and he proclaims this warning. Do you see all the imagery there? Verses 7 all the way through verse 13. All that imagery of a tree and a fig and a vine and an olive tree and a bramble. Here's what he's saying. Four times he repeats that phrase, come and reign over us. He, he pictures Shechem like they're trees, tall trees, cedars of Lebanon. And he says, you know what you guys are like? You're like trees who went out and said to this olive tree, hey, would you reign over us? The olive tree was busy doing productive good things, life-giving things. The tree said no. So then you went to this other tree, this fig tree, and that tree said no. Then you went to something that wasn't even a tree, a vine, and the vine told you no. You know what you did? You went and went to someone who was totally unqualified, who's not even a tree. He's just a bramble, and he's talking of Abimelech. You know what a bramble is, right? Think of a tumbleweed in a Western movie. It's just uprooted, dry, prickly. A bramble would be a small little shrub, a little bush that's got a lot of thorns on it. A little blackberry bramble. Not a tree. There's no shade. If you tried to get shade with a bramble, you'd have to get so close to it, it would prick you. But that's what happens. They say, hey, bramble, why don't you be our king? And he says, if you're really doing this because you guys trust me and love me, come get under my shade. That's an invitation to get hurt. And Jotham indicts them, so it gets worse for them because they don't heed the warning. It reminds me that there are some churches that, that get so desperate for their pastor, they'll keep stooping lower and lower in their requirements. We don't want to find pastors that are above reproach, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1. Let's just find a pastor who, who's got a Master of Divinity degree, or maybe a doctorate. Or maybe they're having trouble. Let, let's just find a pastor who's a certain age, who has a certain type of family. Let's find a pastor of a certain skin color, certain upbringing. We have this ranking in our mind 
of what we want in a leader. And if we're not careful, selfish ambition can take over. That's what's happening here for the leader and the people who are willing to follow him. But it gets worse. You see how bad it gets? It gets so worse in verse 23. Look at verse 23. Look how worse this gets. God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. Verse 24 shows some of the fruit of their wicked ways. Look at verse 25. The leaders of Shechem put men in ambush against him on the mountaintops. They robbed all who passed by him along that way. The man that they've crowned king is now the man that they're trying to to fleece him and take his money, trying to ambush him. God sends this evil spirit. Notice it doesn't say God made an evil spirit in that moment. He's, He's creating all this evil. God sent an evil spirit. God sends this evil spirit to punish them. This gives us hope. If if wicked plans are unfolding, God, time and time again in the scriptures, uses wicked nations, wicked men, wicked spirits to punish those who are wicked. He, He does this. So God doesn't create the evil. He just sends the evil upon them. We can't hold up our finger. God, you're, you're doing evil. No, think of a dog on a leash. God can send evil. He can restrain evil. But he's not the one doing the evil. He's still morally pure and perfect. Everything's folded under his sovereign purposes. So the evil between these these fellows would result in mistrust, division, rivalry, violent attacks. If we were to walk through verse by verse of this middle section, things just keep getting worse and worse and worse. It reminds us of Jesus' words in Mark 3, verse 24. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. This passage is like a miniature case study in that. Ambush is mentioned four times as we go through the passage. It's trickery. It's deceit. You never know who's about to stab you in the back and take you. This disorder and rivalry all comes from the selfish ambition. And things go from bad to worse even when Gael comes to town. He's going to play the family card too. And the leaders of Shechem side with him. Abimelech's Ruler, his officer Zebel, tells him about the plan. They hatched this plan. Let's take down Gael. Let's stop this uprising. But things are about to get tragic. Rather than overlooking the offense, Gael's having a party and with a lot of alcohol involved, as we can see, verse 26 and following. He's having a party and he says in verse 28, Who's Abimelech? Why should we serve him? Abimelech should have just let this go. But he can't overlook an offense. So he determines to fight against the city and drive him out. And things keep getting worse, but then they turn tragic. Third section. Watch how everything gets tragic. This is verses 42 through 55. Abimelech doesn't stop with Gael. He, he crushes him and runs him out of town. But things get so tragic. Look at verse 42. Put your eyes on verse 42 and 43. Look at how tragic this is. It says, verse 42, On the following day, the people went out into the field, 
Abimelech was told that. 43, he took his people, divided them into three companies, and set an ambush in the fields. He saw people coming out of the city. He rose against them and killed them. Innocent people. Abimelech, verse 44, kills that second group of people, those who were in the field. So those who were just going out to work that day, to work in the field, by their proximity to giving in to the bad leadership and allowing selfish ambition to rule over them and their leaders, they get destroyed too. This is not at all meaning that if there's ever a politician or a a mayor in office in our city, or this doesn't mean that any person that we would think is having selfish ambition, we can't let them rule over us. This is talking about God's people. Put the focus on us. Think about if you were to ever leave this church. What kind of leaders would you want? Would you be satisfied with? Would you align yourself to? I praise God for our church here at Park Hills. When we think about those becoming elders, which we are right now as a church family, we hold up the qualifications of Scripture, we pray, we ask questions, we think, we pray again. Lord willing, at our next members meeting, we'll have an opportunity to share some of the fruits of our dialogue of people we've examined to recommend to you as elders. That doesn't mean those people are now elders. That means now you get to investigate what we've thought through. You get to ask them questions. There's this mutual sharing of integrity where we do not want selfish ambition, wickedness, deceit to rule over us. We want purity, righteousness. The people, though, don't care. And things get tragic. People die. You notice verse 45. I know when I was reading it, I had to go to Google and look up a word. I didn't know what the word raised meant, R-A-Z-E-D. Verse 45. Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He captured the city, killed the people who were in it, and he raised the city and sowed it with salt. Things are getting tragic here. For raised, think of like a razor that cuts something down, but completely demolishes the city, completely crushes it, and then sows it with salt. In other words, he makes the fields inoperable for future farming. Complete tragedy. He's tearing apart a whole city. And then that high tower that people run into, verse 49, verse 49 says that he burns people alive. He cuts down his bundle of brushwood. He lays it against the stronghold. They set the stronghold on fire. Verse 49 ends with this. So that all the people of the Tower of Shechem also died, a thousand men and women. This is the tragic end for these people. Do we really believe things will go worse and end in tragedy if we allow unqualified leadership and we align ourselves with it? willingly as God's people? Will the chaos ever end? Well, it does. It seems like such a random verse there in verse 52. He, he goes and attacks a nearby city, Thebes. He's about to do the same plan, burn down the tower. Verse 52. Abimelech came to the tower, fought against it, drew near the door of the tower to burn it with fire. Verse 53. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone 
on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Millstones were used for grinding, crushing grain and wheat. The bottom stone would be huge, massive, stationary. The top stone, a little bit more mobile. We don't know if this woman had superhuman strength or if someone helped her. We don't know that. We know there's strange things happening all throughout Judges. But she throws this stone. She's unnamed. The focus is not her, but the effect of what she does. And look at the effect of it. The angle was right. The wind didn't blow it off course. It struck him in the head. Smacked him in the head perfectly. Crushed his skull. Then he has this attempted self-suicide request. I don't want to be killed by a woman. He's, all he's thinking about is his own pride. All the way till the grave. The theme of self-destruction is capped off literally by his own death wish. He self-destructs. He, he asks for himself to be killed. And I love this idea of a woman bringing forth a rock to crush the head of the enemy. That echoes the promise of Genesis 3.15, where God would use the offspring of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. That points to Christ. This passage points to Christ because God's going to deal with evil. This passage inversely points to Christ because we see an unjust, unauthorized ruler leading God's people. We know Christ is our true leader. So if you're not a Christian this morning, and you're thinking, why are these Christians reading about this random, weird guy who tries to be king? Man, Christians study the weirdest stuff. Well, this passage, if you're not a Christian, let me tell you, this passage is teaching us about sin and how wrong it would be to align ourselves with unjust leadership. And for you, non-believer, this passage is showing you the end goal, the end result of selfish ambition. We all have to choose someone to be king of our lives, either ourselves or someone else or God. This passage shows us what happens when it's not God. If you're not a follower of Christ, here's the news flash for you. You may think life's going fine right now. Abimelech had his glory day, didn't he? But it quickly turned tragic. And if you don't know Jesus Christ, the scriptures tell us that you will die, stand before God, and be judged and sentenced to hell torment, destruction forever. Not because God's mean, but because you have covenanted with your sin. You've been unfaithful to God. All of us have been unfaithful to God. Christians, we understand, are those who turn away from their sin. They acknowledge, if I keep living this way, this whoredom against God, my covenant creator, I will be punished. So a Christian is a person who realizes Christ is the way of salvation. Jesus lived and was condemned in my place and died on a bloody cross, taking all the punishment of God and then rising again, proving he really was God and that God was satisfied. And now Jesus commands everyone to repent and put him as leader and king over their life. Have you done that? Or are you playing it fast and loose and reckless saying, no, it won't be tragic for me in the end with, with a leader other than God. We might even think God's not anywhere to be seen in all this. I'm so thankful for how everything finishes, how refreshing it is to read verse 56. Look at verse 56. In closing, this final fourth section is that God still reigns. 
Verse 56, God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. Verse 57, and God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. God deals with evil. God deals with selfish ambition. God deals with unauthorized leadership. Take heart this morning, brothers and sisters. God notices all that's going on. He will protect his people. This helps our hearts against vengeance, taking things always in our own hands. And then it almost seems strange to hear God talk about Tola and Jair. God's word tells us about these two other random judges. But these are here for a purpose. They're showing us God's plan to deliver his people is not over because there was a bad leader. God sends Tola, and he delivers the people. Chapter 2 of Judges tells us anytime a judge is raised up, it's because God raises them up. And then we see Jair. might seem random again. Why, why are they talking about 30 sons, 30 donkeys, cities? Well, if you remember Gideon's life, Gideon said God should be king, but he lived like he was a king. If you're going to have 30 sons, that's going to take multiple wives. He lives like a king with, with wealth putting his sons all on donkeys, naming cities, giving them cities. So we're seeing throughout this book now, even when God does authorize a leader to rise up, that leader could still have selfish ambition, like Jair seems to have. Things go from bad to worse in this chapter, but I pray that they would not go bad to worse in your life. I pray that this morning as we close in song, We're going to be singing a song called Come Thou Almighty King. Test your heart when we're singing our closing song this morning. The first line of the song says this. Come thou almighty king, help us thy name to sing. Help us to praise, Father all glorious or all victorious. Come and reign over us, ancient of days. Let's not be like the trees kept saying, come and reign over us, worse and worse and worse. Jesus Christ himself is the only one worthy for us to say, come, reign over us. You can lead my life better than I can lead it myself. That's the heart of a Christian. Let's pray and sing. Let's pray. Father, help us now to to sing with full hearts, hearts of faith. We thank you, Lord, for dealing a death blow to evil in Christ on the cross. Already we see you dealing with evil, and although it's not yet, we know a final consummation of your victory and reign is coming. Help us to be ready. Help us to not be ruled by selfish ambition, but ruled by you. In Christ's name.